Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. Today's guest is Bob Desmond, head of Claremont Global. Claremont is a high conviction growth manager with only 10 to 15 companies in the portfolio. Bob identifies as a pessimist, but I think you'll find this interview pretty uplifting. The glass is half full, that's for sure. We cover why balance sheet quality is so essential in today's markets, why Bob is bullish some, but not all big tech, and the one company Bob has been waiting years to buy, and thanks to the recent sell-off, just has. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Okay, Bob, thanks for coming on The Rules of Investing. Morning, Dave. So let's launch straight into markets. How would you describe them today and what are the key signals you're looking at? Sure. Well, markets short term haven't been much fun. No surprises there. Uh, you know, I think everyone knows the, the risks that are out there, inflation, interest rates, Fed's on the warpath, potential downgrades in earnings, um, Ukraine, oil, geopolitical risk, all of those things I think are well well known by the market. I think for us um, as investors and long-term investors, I think the market's probably as attractive as it's been in, in a long time. And we've, we feel particularly encouraged about valuations where they are. Um, and where we contrast is if you look something mm-hmm. like last year, where the macro was great, um, valuations were very pumped up. And I, I found that market much, much more difficult to operate in trying to trying to make sure we didn't drift off into momentum land with some of our valuations. But by the same token, if we're looking to recyc- recycle capital, we didn't want to buy value traps either. So I find for this type of market, even though it's uncomfortable in the short term, we feel pretty good about things um, for the longer term. What did companies get away with in the last decade of cheap money and, and liquidity that they can't get away with today? What, what's changed in terms of how companies need to operate? I think from our viewpoint, and I'm stressing this in our universe, right, so not at a broad level, I think in our viewpoint, there's been a lot of um, talk of disruption to incumbents and threats to incumbents. I think that's changed a lot um, because a lot of the the challenges, you know, could look at say something like in fintech, suddenly you're finding that cost of capital is not zero and they can't just raise equity at ever increasing multiples. And people are saying, well, hold on a minute, you know, what's the, what's the time of this business? When will it break even? When will it be profitable? So from our viewpoint as investors as in incumbent businesses, uh, it's much more attractive because they can pick off niche technologies, they can pick off niche geographies or whatever they're looking for at much, much better valuations. Uh, and those companies will be looking for a home. So for, for people to invest in the number one or number two business, you know, the strong tend to get stronger through tough times. It's, it's much more attractive for us, I think. Have those high uh, PE uh, multiple companies are they now at fair value or is there still some way to fall? Um, I guess from where we look at, uh, things have rebased quite substantially. You know, and I'll give you an example of something that we own in the portfolio that we never thought we'd get a crack at for quite some time is something like Adobe, which I think it got to 50 or 60 times consensus earnings, you know, not that long ago. Uh, and now I was trading um, in the high teens. You know, something like that is, is very attractive for us. The earnings have kept coming through. Um, but the, you know, the stock has fallen and the multiple is much more attractive. I mean, what I tend to look at, and again, I try and just stick to, to our universe. The, you know, the portfolio now is trading around 20 times consensus earnings. Um, you know, not that long ago, it was up in the high twenties. 
So that's a substantial rebasement. And even if I look at our watch list of you know 120 120 odd companies, you know that's rebased to around uh, 21 times earnings. So for our universe, um, the opportunity set is so much better than it was you know 12 18 months ago. Long duration big tech has been uh, you know a high profile victim of the self, um, but you're not so bearish on them. Just looking at your fund here um, in your top holdings, you have Alphabet, you have Microsoft. You conceptualize these stocks as as tech staples. So to take us through that thesis in regards to valuation and the operating environment we're in. So technology is is such a broad term, and I think the media use it in very, very broad terms. You know, that can go from Tesla, you know, uh, to Netflix, to Microsoft and Alphabet, to startups, to, you know, it's 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 a very, very broad term. And and often I will look at a business and go, okay, so is is Microsoft a technology company? Obviously, they're using technology. But if you look at the underlying drivers there, you know, is this a business process company that is using technology to solve, you know, problems for businesses? Um, obviously, their cloud business is more, more cloud, is more technology-based. Or you could look at, say, something like Alphabet. Is Alphabet a technology business or is it a media business? Because most of their earnings are coming from advertising. So using technology, but the actual underlying earnings driver is going to be advertising. So um, what we look for, uh, what we look at a, when, when we say tech staples are things that are very, very stable. So what we look for is businesses that are very established, high margins, strong cash flow, strong balance sheets, and where we can see a strong track record of growth and growth into the future as well. What we don't do is we don't go and find the latest exciting thing in technology uh, because the range of outcomes are so wide on that, you know, something in the consumer electronics or something like that. Uh, we just don't know how durable that will be and which the winners and losers will be. So where we find network effects, uh, you know, things like Microsoft and Alphabet, you know, software and services we love. Uh, and when we look at the valuations, you know, uh, you know, Alphabet's trading at 17 times consensus earnings. Microsoft's at 22 times consensus earnings. Um, I don't think those are, you know, very high multiples for businesses that are growing, still growing in the mid-teens uh, and have exceptionally strong balance sheets. I think Microsoft has a net 55 billion in cash. And Alphabet, last time I looked, is somewhere around 130 billion. They're growing, they've got high margins, they've got strong balance sheets. So it's a very, very broad range when we talk about technology. Have you added to your positions in those companies uh, since multiples have compressed? Uh, we've added Adobe. Yeah, so we've had big weights in Microsoft and Alphabet for a number of years now, uh, but we've added Adobe. That's a new addition to the portfolio. And as I said, when we did the work, we started the work some years ago, but we never thought we would get an opportunity. It, it came much quicker than we thought uh, because the share price has, has gone down quite a bit um, and earnings have kept coming through. What was that share price that it had to get to before you pulled the trigger? To be honest, Dave, I'm going to really disappoint you. I never, I never know what share prices are, very rarely. I can tell you what the discount to value was, but very few of companies. I, I leave that to my co-portfolio manager, Adam, who's very good with the prices. Uh, but I think when he bought it, the, the business had got down to a 25 or 30% discount to what we thought it was worth. Um, I can't remember exactly, but um, it, it had come down a, a substantial way. Yeah. Claremont run um, a high conviction fund, just 10 to 15 stocks. Does holding high conviction positions make you more comfortable in a down market or do you miss having a bit more diversification? Um, or is, is diversification a bit of a misnomer in this market when most everything is down? I, I think from our viewpoint, uh, 
Firstly, um, we only find a, a very small subset of companies that we want to invest in, and an even smaller subset of companies we find at, at fair value. So if you follow that logic through, if we had more companies, we would either have to add lesser quality names, or we'd have to add companies that we thought were more expensive. Um, so I find um, having a very focused portfolio is a really nice place to be. Obviously, when things go wrong, it's not uh, because you're going to have big weights. Uh, but when things go right, obviously, you benefit as well. Um, but having purely from a research point of view, keeping on top of a really small number of stocks, I find you know much more I've, that works for me. Um, and also, if you think about it, if you're going to go through really tough times, let's assume that we are, you want to have your best players on the field. And that means the companies that are you're most comfortable with their competitive positions, their earnings outlooks, their valuations, their management teams. So for me, that works really well. And a good example was through COVID. Uh, you know, through COVID, uh, we were all sent home end of March, uh, and we were able to get across the whole portfolio in a week, speak to our management teams, recalibrate the earnings models. Um, as it turned out, we were way too bearish. Things didn't turn out nearly as bad as we expected. Uh, but you know, if we had to do that with 100 or 150 stocks, that, that would be much more complicated. So just looking at your fund info sheet, you have a focus list of about 80 stocks. Of those, 35 get approved. And then of those, uh, 15 are in the portfolio. 35 stocks are approved. Is, the reasons you just gave me for holding a highly concentrated fund, is that the reason for you know cutting out those 20 stocks that are approved but don't make it into the portfolio? So of that, I think it's now probably about 40 approved. Of, of that list... Um, they're all ready to go into the fund. It's just that they're not at the right price. So if you think of the, if you look at our portfolio and some of the names I've mentioned, then they're not exactly, most of them are not undiscovered names. You've got a few that people wouldn't know, three or four that people maybe wouldn't know as well. But you know, companies like Microsoft or Alphabet or they, they are well known, Visa, they're well known companies. So the way we operate is we know that we'll fo often follow them for years. And then what tends to happen, um, we will either, they'll either have a, a bad earnings number, um, or there might be a story in the market that some things you know people are worried about disruption or whatever it could be. Visa, classic example last year. Um, you know the stock basically went nowhere, went sideways. The earnings kept coming through. Everyone was worried about you know threats from blockchain, Bitcoin, Amazon um, disruption, stable coins. I mean there was just a whole raft of issues, um, and that allowed us to to top up the the, the position. Um, so you know. Basically, what we find is you're normally going to get a couple of week window. It might be a month, and so um, that that is the beauty of 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 having such a focused portfolio. You hold a maximum cash weighting of ten percent. I don't know what it is right now, but the last the last uh, monthly it said you had six percent. How do you view the role of of cash in your portfolio? Is it is it just tactical? Um, what what do you use cash for? It's just residual, Dave. So it's just residual. So if we've sold out of something. And uh, we don't can't find a home for it, you know, to try and get that targeted eight to twelve percent return we're looking for. Uh, we won't just go put it into into the market um, and just hope hope for the best. Um, and we actually found that through to latter stages of last year. I think we came, um, you know, to, into the into this year with cash was running around nine percent. Uh, we just didn't have the opportunities. Now it's sitting around five, and that's about as low as we can go. Um, you know, it just has been a, just a lot more opportunity in the market. More than half of your portfolio uh, is is in the states. What what do you expect out of earnings season coming up? We often get asked about. Um, in fact, of of the listed businesses that we own, thirteen of the fourteen are in the states. 
So that that there, that 53%, that's actually the revenue of the businesses that we own comes from the states. So one, of, this is another one that you will often see strategists or the media, you know, the easy headline is sell America, it's expensive, buy Europe and Japan because they're cheap. Uh, in the quality growth universe, we actually find, and I have found this consistently in my career, the US tends to be cheaper than Europe. Uh, we tend to only invest in developed markets. And the reason being, I think, is um, just scarcity value. So why why we are invested in the US is is because they have the best businesses in the world and the sectors we're interested in. So that's the first place. If you look at Europe and Japan, they tend to be more on the production side of the economy, more cyclical, so more banks, more oils, engineering, car companies tend to be more cyclical businesses. But that number you cited there, the 53%, that's actually as a percent of revenues. So obviously there are other businesses we own are multinationals. Uh, and the example I often give to people is, look, if you look at something like Australia, another inverted commas cheap market, uh, but it's cheap because the market's dominated by banks and resources. If you look in the quality growth space, we don't invest in Australia, but if we did, a lot of those businesses will trade 10, 20 multiples north of where they would in the States. So we just look at where the businesses, where they are, bottom up, you know, don't really look at top down at all. In terms of earnings season, to get back to your your, your second part of your question, what do we expect? Um, I think at a, at a very high level, I would expect downgrades. Um, you know, economy, you can clearly see now in our transcripts, it's just starting, uh, but you can hear, you know, the signs of, of, of weakness. Um, so I would expect downgrades. I don't think that's a, that's anything uh, revolutionary. Um, from our businesses, we're, we're really looking for just resilience. Um, so resilience, organic growth, margin improvements, cash flows. I think a key one for our companies will be capital allocation. So for the last few years, they've really just been kind of buying back stock at prices, we would say, not particularly value enhancing. Um, so now with, with uh, valuations depressed, we'd like them to be buying their stock at attractive prices and also putting some of their cash piles to work and doing accretive strategic M&A. So quite often when you go through these periods and downturns, the strong get stronger and they actually create a whole lot of value. You don't see it at the time for the next three to five years in terms of the, the, the stock they've bought or you know acquisitions they've made. With the cost of money uh, increasing, um, what's your view on highly leveraged companies? Are they out? To be honest, highly leveraged companies are always out for us. Yeah. We, we just don't go there. It's just another layer of risk um, we don't want to take on. Um, if you look at the portfolio today, it's almost net cash. And that's a great position to go into a downturn in for two reasons. One, it means you don't have to spend analyst time focusing on, you know, do we really have to recalibrate the balance sheet? Do they need a rights issue? Can they re-roll over the debt, recalibrate all the earnings numbers? But purely from an offensive point of view, like what I spoke about earlier, now with those cash piles, they can buy back their stock cheaply. They can make sensible, strategic, accretive acquisitions. It just takes away a lot of the risk. And also from a from a portfolio manager's perspective, just making decisions, we just don't have to worry about that. Um, so debt is always out with us. We don't like it. These big tech names, as a general statement, they've been sold off because uh, people you know think might think they're long duration names uh, with rates going up assume that's bad news. But a lot of these companies are just swimming in cash seal. Um, so what's your view in, on that sort of that balance between, you know, how much cash a company has and the rate cycle? I mean, to be honest, um, I would like to see them hold less cash. Um, 
you know, I don't think there's a reason that that Alphabet really need to hold under 30 billion. I would have said the same with Microsoft, but then they've gone and bought, were trying to buy Activision Blizzard. So maybe there might be opportunities for them to to buy, you know, sensible acquisitions. But um, I would prefer on balance most of these companies to hold less cash. Um, you've actually looked at something like um, Alphabet now, you know, the last few years, and that was a key part of the thesis when we bought it is that that cash pile would really start building up and they've started buying back their stock, which we, we're happy with. What we, we don't want them to do is to go and um, you know, fritter away that cash. I think it's going to be a lot harder for big tech companies to do acquisitions. Um, obviously, the regulatory environment has changed under the Biden administration. Um, but yeah, if, I, I, on balance, I'd prefer them not to run with such high cash levels and give that back to us. I think Apple's done a pretty good job um, of buying back a lot of their stock, um, particularly when it was very, very advantageous. We don't own Apple. We're unlikely to own it. But I think that's one company that has really put its, its cash to work in a, in a very good way. And I think, uh, to be honest, Microsoft over the years has done a pretty good job as well. Um, so rather they give it back to us as shareholders if they've got no use for it. So is that the standard play? Are there many opportunities in the market uh, to put that cash to work aside from buybacks? Not really, to be honest. I think I think um, there have been times where companies have made incredible acquisitions. I mean, you can think of Facebook with Instagram. You can think of Alphabet with DoubleClick. There have been times where you know you look back or YouTube and you look at back and go, wow, that was an incredible acquisition. No one kind of could envisage at the time how, how good it could be. So um, we we do like companies to be able to do that. We, we're not you know the visionaries that a lot of these tech founders are. Um, but you know if they're going to make a really big you know acquisitions, the bigger you go um, and the more away you go from the core business, I just think the the risk the risk goes up a lot. Um, let's talk about currency risk. Obviously, that's always there um, when you invest overseas. Do you hedge currency risk? Just looking at your your fund performance um, over uh, a majority of, of time frames, it seems to add a little bit of return for the fund. Well, yeah, I mean, the, That's just the fund started when the Aussie dollar was quite high. The strategy started, I think, the you know we were over over you know one, um, you know, so the the currency was 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 very high then. Um, obviously, now it's fallen into the low low sixties. Uh, so we we don't pick currencies. We have two products. We have a fully hedged product and a totally unhedged product. We leave advisors and clients to make their mind up around currency. Obviously, if you look at that revenue spread that we got, what we're more interested in is where the revenue is coming from. So 53% of the revenues come from US dollars and the balance is roughly evenly split between Europe, um, UK and emerging markets. Um, so that's what we're more interested in. So. For example, if you look today, um, on one hand, we're seeing earnings downgrades in some of our multinationals because of currency. And then on the flip side, we're making it back because the Aussie dollar is falling. So we never try and predict currencies. Obviously, where the currency is at the moment, and this is not advice, but what I can tell you is that most of our inflows at the moment are coming in through the, the hedge unit trust. Your approach is, is quality growth. Um, can you define that uh, for us, the, the quality aspect, the growth aspect, um, and how they mutually complement one another? I'd say in, a, in t the two key things we're looking for, one is durability of competitive advantage, and one is durability of earnings. So what that basically means is when we look at a business, we want to be able to say, we, first of all, we want to see an established track record of, of you know, earnings. And that's not over a couple of years. We generally look back 10, 15 years. You know, one of the first places we will start is the GFC and go, okay, 
that was a big economic shock. How, how did that business get through the, the GFC? I mean, one of the things I like to quote is that of the 25 largest Australian businesses through the GFC, 17 of the top 25 either cut their dividends or raised emergency capital. We, we don't want to be anywhere near that. So if you've got a long history of established earnings, that's a good place to start. I mean, the average age of the businesses that we own is over 80 years old. So they've been around. It's not their, their first rodeo. The second piece is, okay, um, can we understand the business's competitive advantage and what, is that, what does that look like in, in five years? Uh, and then obviously we want growing businesses. So we targeted 8 to 12% per annum as our return and we want that to all come from earnings growth. Now that can range, you know, at the bottom end, something like we, something we've owned in the past, something like Diageo, you know, very strong competitive advantage from its brands, often hundreds of years old. Uh, but it's not what I call really go-go growth. It's probably a 7 or 8% grower over time. But then by the same token, we could own something like a, you know, an Alphabet or Microsoft or Visa, which are growing mid-teens. Um, but what's important for us is what's that earnings number look like in five years' time and what, what does the business look like? Because that will be what the multiple the business will trade on in five years' time. If we can get those two numbers, now we've got an idea of, of what the business could be worth in five years' time. And then we, all the other things that go with quality growth, decent organic growth, high margins, Strong balance sheets, strong cash flows. Um, that's kind of the, you know, our, our mantra and the things we're looking for. Especially uh, on the NASDAQ, the big tech names, a lot of focus you know, in, in the era of, of cheap money has been on revenue versus earnings. Has, has that been a mistake? And what does that revenue versus earnings um, uh, equation look like these days in, in the environment we're in now? I think um, it's horses for courses. So we, we're a 10 to 15 stock portfolio. So we, we all our businesses are very, very profitable. I think the EBIT margin across the portfolio today is 29%. In fact, I think it's at a record high. Um, but obviously, if you want to go and buy businesses that aren't profitable, um, you just have to own more because you know, it's, you're now in much more in sort of venture capital space. So you can go and look at something like Sequoia Capital, which is an incredibly successful business. You know, of their winners, I mean, I don't know the numbers, but I'm, I'm just giving you some rough numbers. Let's say there's 100 businesses in the portfolio, you know, I don't know, four or five are big winners. I honestly don't know the numbers, but the risk is so much higher. And so your range of outcomes on every unprofitable business is so much, so much higher. Um, and by definition, if you're unprofitable, from time to time, you're gonna have to keep refunding the business, either through debt, cost of debt's going up, or through equity, uh, cost of equity is going up, or the equity markets are just shut. So your, your risk level goes up. And so if your risk level goes up, you just have to hold more positions. So it's not not for us. I mean, lots of people made lots of money in the last 10 years in unprofitable tech. It's, it's just not for us. We want, with only 10 to 15 businesses, they all have to be substantially profitable. So which sectors are looking attractive for you at the moment? <laughs> they're all looking pretty attractive, um, to be honest. I would say the one, um, I mean, large cap tech has definitely been, uh, is very attractive. Uh, so, you know, Alphabet, Microsoft and Adobe in the portfolio, we've, we've been topping those up, Visa. Um, uh, consumer discretionary, obviously, you know, with people worried about, about a recession. Uh, so LVMH has come back into the portfolio. To be honest, that was more around the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, it's only 2% of the business, but the stock went down high teens really quickly, and that gave us the opportunity to, to get in. Um, Nike is another one we got in the portfolio, so that's down substantially this year. 
Um, still think that's terrific business long-term, incredible brand, 70% bigger than their closest peer, always outspend on marketing, um, great innovation, increasingly taking control of their distribution. Um, so we kind of like those pocket of, pockets of weakness. Um, it allows us to get entry, build entry positions for the next five to seven years. Um, so that sector has been really interesting. I mean, to be honest, they've they've all been, you know, we, we're finding value everywhere now, to be honest. I'm loving the optimism, Bob. <laughs> I speak to a lot of fund managers and, and not many are as optimistic as yourself. Well, it depends on your time frame, Dave. So, so if you'd spoken to me last year, um, listen, I was really enjoy, enjoying the returns and enjoying the returns for our clients. I think we had north of 40% returns last year. That's great um, in the short-term basis. But when you look long-term, what we're trying to do is get our clients to 8 to 12% per annum returns. And we had borrowed substantially from the future. So whilst you're looking backwards, you feel great. Looking forwards, you're not feeling so good because valuations are so pumped up. I think the fund got to 29 times earnings. Today, uh, short term looks horrible um, because obviously all the news that you know, I mentioned at the beginning, but then when I look at the valuations and what are we trying to do for our clients is get them to 8 to 12% per annum, um, we think we've got a reasonable shot at that. And you know, I can stand in front of them last year, I was saying, just be careful, valuations are really pumped up. Today, I'm going, yes, the short term looks murky, we don't know what it looks like, but longer term, you know, the valuations are so much better and if you've got a better starting point, you got much much better chance of getting to that eight twelve percent per annum, and the second thing is we just get opportunities in businesses we've wanted to own for like five years. You know, we've added to a name in the portfolio in animal healthcare. We followed that for five years. It's only got close on two occasions, so it gives you the opportunity to really substantially upgrade the quality of the portfolio and the valuation. With a sector like consumer discretionary, they've they've been beaten down. And, and you've picked them up at a good price. How long um, should investors expect to, to wait out, you know, these dark days in a sector like consumer discretionary? So, so one of the things that we do, we do no macro predictions, which will probably surprise you. Um, and and there, I, I wish I could, um, because then I could sit at home and day trade. Um, so I can't call the macro. Experience has taught me I'm not very good at macro. I'm not very good at calling the markets. Um, so what I feel a lot more comfortable with going is, okay, uh, what do I think this business can earn in five years' time and what do I think it'll be worth? Um, so if we look at it that way, um, yeah, sure, we might get a recession and sure, earnings will go down in the short term. But most investors, most of our investors, if you're going into the equity market, you should at least have a five to seven year time frame. In fact, recessions come every five years. They're normal. Um, they're a normal fact of life. So what the way we re-engineer and say, well, we don't know what's going to happen with the macro, but so why don't we buy businesses that we know from past evidence shows that they're very resilient during the macro. Sure, their earnings might be down. Um, most of our earnings recover within you know, when a, year, a year or two back to where they were, and then they keep growing. That, that for me is a lot easier way to think about things rather than saying, trying to time it. And um, I mean, I'll give you another example. If you go back to December last year, everyone was feeling great. No one, no one predicted that the Fed would be so hawkish this year. Well, I don't know anyone. We, we were worried about rates, but I have to admit the Fed has surprised me by how hawkish they have been. No one predicted Ukraine, obviously. No one predicted the, the spike. In, so the, the future is, is always, always uncertain. And Warren Buffett's got a great quote here, which he, he says, the future is always uncertain. 
you pay a high price for a cherry market consensus. Uncertainty, and this is the key bit, uncertainty is the friend of the buyer of long-term value. So actually, when we see uncertainty, you just have to lean into it. I know it feels instinctively you don't want to, but that's where you'll find the value. What about the investor relations piece? You can go on all day saying you need a five to seven year time frame, but when your investors see in the short term uh, drawdowns, uh, how do you manage that? How, how have your investors been um, and how do you think about managing those expectations? That is a brilliant question, to be honest, because I think I think our industry, we try and reframe the discussion with our clients. We try and get away from what do you think the, the economy will do? What do you think the market will do? Because as I've said so many times on this podcast, experience has taught me I don't know. Um, I feel a lot more comfortable if you say to me, what do you think the businesses are worth and what return can we get from the portfolio? So one of the things we always uh, at pains to explain to our clients is, where's the portfolio trading today and what we think the underlying businesses are worth? So when we went through last year and the business was, um, valuations were pretty pumped up, our dialogue with clients was just saying, listen, we have a targeted 8 to 12% return. We're going to struggle to hit the left side of that equation because it's basic maths. Basically, your return is going to be earnings growth, multiple compression or expansion and dividends. We just had to do the maths. A lot of our businesses, we could see 6 or 7% per annum multiple compression. Today, our discussion with our clients is we think we have a good shot at getting that 8 to 12% per annum if your clients think long-term and stay with us for the journey. And so the result of that is they've had really good inflows into the fund this year and into the strategy. And that's exactly what we want. We want clients to put money in when the market's down. But when you actually look at the whole industry, we're seeing outflows of equity funds. So last year when the markets are high, people are putting money in the funds. Now markets are low, they're taking money out. And so your, your, your flows are net positive? They're net positive. Net We've positive. had one of our best years for flows in some time. Okay, so they, they definitely subscribe to the thesis. You have to, basically, what I talk about, you have to build a relationship with clients. Not, not, you don't just turn up one day and say, this is the fund, we want you to invest in it. You, you build a relationship with them over years. So they have to understand the philosophy. They have to understand how you think. They get a feel for how you think about valuations and markets. And when, when markets are high, you need to say the markets are high. Then obviously our job is to get money in. Um, we're not, you know, we're not all, um, you know, socialists here. We do have to actually earn some money out of the fund. But ideally, if you just pull them back a little bit and then when the funds are down, they trust you to say, listen, you need to start putting money in the fund now. Now, listen, I'm not a, market forecast, the markets can go a lot lower from here. But over a five to seven year period, I think we can get our clients to a decent outcome. So through the bull market of 21, were you telling investors, you know, this is this is great, but we need to keep our, our feet on the ground and not get ahead of ourselves? 100%. So, I mean, and at times it actually made me look a bit silly, to be honest. In fact, I was probably too conservative. And in fact, our, our distribution people were, were getting a bit cranky with me uh, because their jobs to get money in. Um, by the way, we don't report, we don't reward them on, on dollars raised uh, because what we don't want them to do is just go out there and just rattle the tin, rattle the tin, rattle the tin because their job is to get as much money in at the top of the market and get their bonus. So they get reward, they don't get rewarded on dollars raised. Um, they, sh- they get rewarded in different ways. Um, so um, we, we try and frame it and just basically say our target return is 8 to 12% per annum. We're going to struggle to hit the left side of that equation. Today, we're saying we think we have a much better chance of getting that. And that's and leave leave investors to make up their own minds and leave, just give them enough signals, but leave them to make up their own minds. You know, financial advisors, know they know their clients. They know how risk averse they are. We can only give them certain signals. 
And generally we say to them, make sure that if you're putting money in, make sure clients can handle short-term bumps because there could be a lot of short-term bumps. You know, it's, it doesn't look so good out there at the moment. Bob, we always finish with three favorite questions uh, we put to our hosts. Question one, what's the single biggest thing investors are getting wrong about markets currently? From our viewpoint, um, it's natural human nature that when things are uncertain, everyone's time frame shortens. It's just we, we want to control, we want to predict, we want to see the future. What you should actually do is just actually lengthen your time frame and go, sure, this is going to be bumpy over the next months, few years, whatever it is. But what we're looking to do is to buy great businesses at good prices, and they are only available when things are uncertain. There's no other way. So you have to lean into that uncertainty. So what tends to happen in this type of environment, people cut their one-year earnings number, and then they cut their one-year multiple. And we saw exactly the same thing, exactly the opposite last year. All the earnings are pumped up, um, and then all the multiples are pumped up as well, and then they justify the valuation that way. So now we're getting the exact opposite thing. So what you should be doing, in my opinion, is going, well, where are earnings likely to be in three or four years? And what multiple should the stock normally trade at or the market in three or four years? And that's a better view because most investors, if you're investing in the equity market, you're investing, it's your super. You're investing often for decades. Um, you know, one of the best things that I, I, I read is uh, this weekend, and I've have, I'd reread it, I hadn't read it for a while. The best thing you can do as an investor is go back and read all newspapers. Go back and read newspapers from the GFC. Go back and read newspapers after 9-11, after the emerging markets crisis, after Trump got elected. It looks like the world is always ending. At the time, it feels terrible. But over time, earnings keep coming through. And as long as your earnings keep coming through, you will eventually, the share price will track those earnings. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. Everyone says they read Buffett and then a market like this comes along and the same people seem to become day traders very quickly. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I have some sympathy with that to some degree because that's what often clients clients become more, the more uncertain clients become, the more short-term they become. And, and then on the flip side, when markets are really running, cash starts burning a hole in their pocket. So that's why I think the communication piece with your clients is, is crucial and making sure that you find clients that understand you, understand your investment approach, are comfortable with it. We know that a lot of people are not comfortable with our investment approach. They don't want 10 to 15 stocks. They want you to call the market. They want you to call the short term. They want us to be in oils now, and that's fine. They're just not for us. But where you've got to do is try and find that like-minded, you know, where you've got alignment between your clients and your investment approach. And that is where I think you're going to get the best outcome for clients. Could you share uh, a story of a big win or a big loss in your investing career? Uh, what happened and what did you learn from it? You want one of each or? <laughs> ah, <laughs> um, either I mean, one of it or one of each. A, a big one would be, um, I think in 2011, recommending MasterCard and Visa. Uh, you know, they had both recently listed, not that recently, I think uh, MasterCard came 2006, I think Visa was 2008. Um, but basically what had happened, there was the Durban Amendment in the States, which basically was going to regulate uh, interchange fees for both of those businesses. Um, and they got down to multiples of around 13 times earnings. I mean, those are incredible businesses that had huge runways of growth. You could see the cash to card trend that was going to happen. You could see the increasing use of cards. You could see the growth opportunities. They were growing over 20% per annum. So that debit interchange regulation firstly affected the banks much more than it did MasterCard and Visa. 
um, that there's been debit change uh, regulation, in reduction in exchange fees all over the world for a long period of time that had not had a very limited impact on their businesses. And actually, US debit exchange was, itself was only a small part of the business. Um, so I think, you know, the lesson I took out of that is that, you know, rare opportunities like that are so rare and it normally comes from a headline or a big headline. Um, you can think of American Express with Warren Buffett and the salad scandal. It's normally a big headline. And so what ends up happening, people just look at the headlines, but they don't actually try and quantify it in numbers. They just look at the headlines and they see the share price going down. Um, but the results were incredible. The margins, you could see the runway. Uh, you just had to think longer term, do your work. I mean, I think I probably just spent three or four months. That's all I looked at at that period. And in the end, I, th I thought, you know, I've never seen an opportunity like that. I've never seen an opportunity like that. And I think I rec recommended to the to the fund that we we put 10% in MasterCard and 10% in Visa. I think he was probably a bit more sensible and we put half, half in MasterCard and half in Visa and they're up over 10 times since then. You mentioned headlines. Do investors get too sucked into to narratives at the expense of fundamentals? Uh, yes, m most, most of the time, um, but not always. Uh, so, um, but I, I think generally what I've found is that narrative will often follow a share price. So when a share price is going down, um, then the narrative will tend to follow. And then it kind of becomes a circular loop. And when the share price is going through the roof, there's another narrative that comes through that. Through that. Um, we can think of last year, buy now, pay later. The narrative just keeps coming through. All these fintech you know, businesses that are going to take over the world. Uh, Visa had had it. I mean, I was amazed. Last year, people were telling that Visa was a dinosaur. It was still growing mid-teens with an incredible runway of growth, but it was a dinosaur because it wasn't growing at the rates that some of the other fintechs were growing at. So, And then, you know, go fast forward another year, well, everyone now thinks, oh, they're an established player and they like it again. So often narrative will follow a, a share price. And I think what's more important is to understand competitive advantage, look at the numbers, and then have a very clear idea of what the business is worth. And that can only come from looking at what the, what the earnings are going to be three or five years out. Third question, if markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, not that we recommend that, uh, which company would it be and why? I think from our fund, if I had to pick one, and we love all our children. Uh, <laughs> but pick, your, pick your favorite. <laughs> my favorite child. I think it would probably be Microsoft. Um, so no, no, no business school awards for that one. Uh, but I just look at it and I go, this is so durable. You know, if I speak to IT people at work and say, what are the chances of getting Microsoft out? It's, they're just, it's zero. It's just too built into processes, workflows. Um, you know, it's just not possible to get them out. They're even more now plugged into your business because of their cloud business. So everyone's moving to the cloud. Um, that's, you know, Zero is their fastest growing business as well. You need, it's got enormous network effects, incredible ubiquity. If you think you're paying $29 for a Microsoft license per month, I spend probably more on coffee in a week. They could charge me 50 bucks. They could charge me 100 bucks. What am I going to do? I'm not going to be able to move away from them. So it's just the, the, the cost of value is incredible. The ubiquity is just huge. The network effects, the scale effects, the brand effects. Um, and then, you know, look at what, you know, look at the balance sheet. They got a net 55 billion, you know, their margins are high thirties. Um, and they're still growing, you know, you know, 10 to 15% on the top line. Um, and you're only paying 22 times consensus earnings for that. So what does 22 times consensus earnings mean? Well, I could put my money in a US 10 year bond and I'll earn today around 4%. 
you know, I'm earning four and a half percent in Microsoft in year one, and that's growing. You know, it's got a good, it's growing over time. So that's probably the one. If I had to produce, picked one, on terms of the business model and valuation and management, I think they have great management. Be that one. Big moat and massive moat. Bob, this has been a great chat. Thank you so much for coming on the Rules of Investing. Thank you, Dave. It's my pleasure. That's it for today's episode. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. See you next week.